Now for our message today to be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, The Return of the King, The Kingdom of God, Part 1. Good afternoon, everyone. So, as some of you may know, I was born in a kingdom. <clears throat> I might be a little surprised to some maybe. And I lived in a kingdom for um, about 24 years. Anybody else lived in a kingdom? I know Marcus lived in a kingdom. You guys are all Republicans? <laughs> I'm shocked. <clears throat> and in the, uh, of course, it's the United Kingdom, right? The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It's not the United Kingdom of Good Britain or OK Britain. It's Great Britain. We're a very humble race. And then, of course, we leave the Northern Island on there just to remind everybody we're still occupying some territory. Sorry, Mark. Very long name for this kingdom. It is a kingdom that has had, uh, or at least England, the central part of the kingdom, has had a monarchy uh, since 871 AD. So that was the combined monarchy of England under Alfred the Great. <clears throat> then we had a little bit of an interruption when those pesky French came over for a visit in 1066. But we, uh, we, we pretty much solved that and just turned them all into Englishmen. And then for about 10 years, we toyed with the idea of a republic. 10 years under Oliver Cromwell. And then we realized that we would rather have a monarchy back than be a republic. So that tells you how bad the republic it was put Charles II back on the throne. So that's 1,151 years of near continual monarchy rule in England and then in the larger United Kingdom. 1,151 years. I think it's the fifth oldest uh, surviving monarchy in the world. Uh, I think actually the Japanese uh, monarchy is the oldest. But it's an institution, as you can imagine, that runs very deep. So uh, those of you that have not been to England and seen some of this, in England you will see signs of royalty all over the place. You'll see a crown on like a phone box or a, a, an old a post box, um, a mailbox or whatever you call it. And it has ER on it. And it stands for Elizabeth Regina, meaning Elizabeth Regal or Elizabeth, the, the monarch, the queen. And then, of course, you've got all the public buildings, and you've got all of your documentation that you get from the government with the seal, the crest on there, uh, sometimes including the royal seal and the inscription underneath it that says, Duet Mondrat. Anybody know Latin for that? No, there's no Latin experts in here. 
I'm not an expert either. I just know it means God and my right. Again, a very humble people. God and my right. And yet, this country, as we know, a small island off the coast of Europe, grew into a very large empire, one of the largest in history, actually physically the largest in history, at one point comprising a quarter of the world's population and a quarter of its land area in one single empire. There's good and there's bad, of course, with that. But then within that empire, Britain also claimed all the oceans and seas, wherever the Royal Navy was as well. So it, of course, became the empire upon which the sun never set. And I think I've mentioned this before. Historians have gone back retroactively and said the British Empire was the first hyperpower. The United States, uh, after the Cold War, becoming the second hyperpower, which is that there is no other balancing superpower to it. Um, I suppose in ancient terms, maybe Rome might have come close to that when they defeated Carthage. But even then, they had some of the Persians further east that could counter Rome. So although it lasted for a thousand years, it didn't get to that level of being able to dominate any other power on Earth. A little tiny island did this. But of course, that wasn't the only empire we've ever had in, in, the, in the world, is it? We're very familiar with many others. All kinds of kingdoms and empires that man has created and raised uh, out of their own, what, humility? No, their own desire for power and rulership over other men. We've had the Mongol Empire. I think it's one of the largest single land empires in history. The Chinese and Japanese dynasties, very famous. And as I mentioned before, the Japanese royalty and their monarchy goes back longer than any other. And then, of course, we have the ancient power of Egypt. And then we get to the empires that are mentioned in Scripture, the Babylonian Empire. Very powerful in its time. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37, when Daniel is giving the dream and the interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar of what his dream was and what it meant, he gives us this structure, and we've all read this many times before, but I want to try and go through it here in a little bit of a different context. Because this message is entitled, The Return of the King. And what my hope is, is to do a series on the kingdom of God, on understanding attributes of the kingdom of God, what it means for us, what it means for us now, and what it will mean for us in the future. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired of focusing on this world. I'm tired of the rulership of man, and I'm really looking forward to the rulership of God. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. So in order to get there, though, the kingdom has to come, doesn't it? The kingdom of God has to come. So I thought this might be a good place to start, to look at the return of the king and, and some of the things that take place and why these things are taking place. 
So in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, he says, You are king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and great glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And then, as we know, if we can look at world history, and how it aligns with Daniel's interpretation of this dream, along came another empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, but after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth, and that is generally accepted as the Greco-Macedonian Empire, taken to its furthest extent by Alexander the Great, coming after the Medes and the Persians. And then the most famous comes Rome. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Then comes an empire, or rather, then comes an empire that is yet to be fulfilled. After Rome, we get this other empire that we are still looking for into the future. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And as I said, we've yet to see that, that kingdom fully realized. We know what Rome is, and we know the, the inheritance that we have from Rome, certainly in the Western world. We've replicated so many things from the Roman Empire. Here in this country, we even have a Senate, right? We have some, a lot of commonality with that Roman tradition. In the British Empire, it was Britannia that was portrayed, this Romanesque symbol of ruling the waves. We are inheritors of that Roman tradition. But what it's going to be has not really been fully revealed. Now, we have an idea. We have some theories. But as we know, that those theories can be wrong, can't they? And, and prophecy is not the future written in advance. It is something that God gives us so that when things happen, we know that he ordained them. It's really for post-event is, is my perspective on, on prophecy in many ways. But what we do know is this kingdom, this world-ruling empire, will be the last one in the history of man. This will be the last kingdom where man rules the earth. Think about that. After how many thousands of years of man ruling this earth, we get down to this moment. The last kingdom of men. Because what follows it is a new kingdom. A 
kingdom unlike any that we have ever seen before. We've never lived in this kind of kingdom. It is a kingdom that will have no end. It will last forever. It will be the final hyperpower. It will have no challengers. It is a kingdom that lasts forever. It won't be an empire upon the, on which the sun doesn't set. It'll be an empire that doesn't need the sun or the moon. For God itself will be the light. Daniel says, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Never wane. No barbarians at the gates. No corruption to bring it down from the inside. It is a kingdom that will never pass away. And then he says something that I find really interesting, and I hadn't noticed it before. Daniel says, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. The kingdom will not be left to other people. Now, in kingdoms, we typically have a hereditary monarchy, right? And it's passed down from father to son. And, and oftentimes there's, it's passed down from father to son. And then somebody's murdered. And then there's another father that picks up the mantle and tries to pass on down to his son. And it's just mayhem. And there's no qualification. You just were born. And you were born first. And you were male. And now you have the right to rule all the people in your kingdom. In some ways, I think we can take from this that it won't be left to other people. Now, you might be asking, well, wait a second, there's a role for the saints in here. There is. But the rulership will not be left to other people. The kingdom will not be left to others. And that's an important thing for us to understand. There will be one consistent ruler. Daniel says, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So unlike in the history of man, when we have a kingdom overtake another kingdom, and then it's the power base for a while, and then it becomes destabilized and collapses, and, and the people it was ruling kind of rise back up and then get overtaken by others. I mean, that's been our story throughout history over and over again. The kingdoms that it crushes will never rise again. Never come back again. And there's a time coming. Think about this. Sometime into that kingdom of God, there are going to be people born that will have no idea what it's like to live otherwise. They will only know what it's like to live in the kingdom I wish I just knew that, right? That will be an amazing thing to see. Daniel concludes with a statement. He says, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, all of those things that those kingdoms were made of and that they relied on were all broken down and crushed. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. 
The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Now, how do we know the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure? Well, we might just say, well, we inherently trust the Scriptures. and That's okay. That's good. But I think there are three points to help us feel confident in what Daniel has talked about here. Remember something about this passage. Daniel's life was on the line. Remember? The king brings all the wise men in and says, I had a dream. Tell me what it was, and then tell me what it means. And they couldn't. No, 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 king, you, you just tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it was. Yeah, like last time, when you said such and such was going to happen. I mean, he wasn't a fool. He was tired of these wise men and these soothsayers coming up with all of these ideas for his dream or prophecies or whatever it may be. Well, they couldn't. So they were all going to get killed, just like Daniel, because they couldn't tell him the dream and the interpretation. So Daniel goes in there with the world's biggest guess, right? No, his life is on the line. He's not going to guess. He is going to talk to God, and he is going to pray and plead for God to give him the answers. And when he walks in there, he knows exactly what the dream was and what the interpretation was. It had to be revealed by God. And God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. Right? That's sometimes something that we miss. Is there's a reason that this is in the book. There's a reason that we are to know these things. And this story is here. Then Daniel, the second point, he could not possibly soar into the future. The only future he might have been able to see was the Medes and the Persians coming on in because he actually lived into that time frame. So maybe he could have looked at the political landscape. Who was likely to threaten the rulership in Babylon and make a guess? But he was long dead once the Greeks came in, the Macedonians, and Rome, and so on. He could not have guessed. He could not have made this interpretation up for himself. And then lastly, we can trust this interpretation. As, and Daniel says it is, it is a sure thing. It is because it was given by the one who does not just see into the future. It's by the one who ordains the future, orchestrates the future. Remember a few, I guess a few months ago now, I, I quoted from the scripture in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. When God reveals things to us, 
to man in the Bible, to the prophets, it's for a purpose. And he will complete that purpose. And he calls it from the beginning, from, from the beginning, and he calls what the end will be. As we studied a while back, God declares the end from the beginning. And he states what he is going to do because he's, he's putting it in motion. He's bringing it forward so that he makes it come to pass. But there's something even more interesting in this passage. And it kind of jumped out at me this morning. It's a curious phrase in, in verse 11. God says he calls a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Now, I did a little bit of study on this, and, and there are some that suggest that this bird of prey was Cyrus the Mede. Reg, you've heard of that. <laughs> but the, the reasoning given, I'm not too sure about. One of them was because he had a crooked nose that looked like a bird's beak. Okay, I mean, it could, it could. Um, but Cyrus did also use an eagle as a symbol, uh, one of his royal symbols. And then, and of course, Rome also used uh, the eagle, I believe, as one of their standards. So maybe there's something to that. But it did make me wonder, this bird of prey from the east is further defined as a man who executes the counsel of God. So we, we have the imagery of the bird of prey, but then he tells us a little bit more detail. He says, no, it's the man that executes the counsel of God. Well, so who is that? Who executes the counsel of God? The plan of God, the work of God. And then it also says he comes from a far country. Far country. Could this possibly be representing a role of Jesus? I'm not saying that's what it is, but it, it just struck me as really interesting. There have been many people who have executed the counsel of God. Nebuchadnezzar, you could say, executed the counsel of God. He just didn't know he was doing so, right? Pharaoh in Egypt executed the counsel of God, the plan of God. God hardened his heart. He was playing right into his hand. But is, is that what the scripture means? There are prophets, good and bad, that have executed the plan of God for good and bad. But the biggest example of anyone executing the plan of God is Jesus Christ. It's interesting. It is interesting. And then, of course, comes from the east. It says he comes from the east. So that can't be Rome, because Rome was further west. It could potentially be Cyrus. But that's kind of right in the area. <clears throat> so who is coming from the east? and executing the plan of God. Well, we know from Jesus' own account in Matthew 24 
that his return is seen as the lightning comes from the east to the west. Let's read that real quick. In Matthew 24 and verse 26. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the sun, will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now sometimes people confuse this and look at it <clears throat> as though it's an electrical storm. Right? It's lightning. But lightning goes all over the place. It doesn't go from east to west. Unless by chance. But the lightning in the sky comes from east to west at sunrise. So we have this return of Jesus. It's going to be as public as the sunrise. It's not a secret rapture. It's not hidden. It's for the whole world to see. And it's irrepressible. Think about that. Try and stop the sunrise tomorrow. Can the nations all get together tomorrow and stop the sunrise? No. That's why we have this imagery. When Jesus returns, he will not be stopped. Just like the rising of the sun. And it shines on everything. And you can't stop it. All the kingdoms and the powers of the earth are overwhelmed by it. And it is, in many ways, like that bird of prey coming from the east, and we'll see why. Because Jesus says this in verse 28, Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So we've got this bird of prey gathered where the carcass is. Now, why would it say that? Well, eagles are not going to just kill some prey and then leave, leave its prey out for a fox to come along and get, are they? They're going to gather over it, and they're going to consume it. They're going to eat its prey. What did Daniel say back in chapter 2 and verse 44? He says, And in the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. So we're given this imagery of the kingdom of God crushing and consuming. Taking away, just kind of eradicating, erasing from existence. All of these kingdoms. And in many ways, just like an eagle, over its prey, it doesn't leave it until it's all gone. It's done. It's eaten up. And that prey is dead. It's powerful imagery. I think of the kingdoms of man being devoured by this bird of prey, these eagles. And it's a powerful message for us to understand. There's a day coming. Not that far off from now. There is a day coming when the kingdoms of men will be gone. There will not be all of these governments that we see today. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. They will be consumed and replaced by the kingdom of God. 
every kingdom and dynasty that elevates one man or woman over another will be completely eradicated. Nothing will be left. And why do you think that God does this? Because, you know, in man, in, in man's world, oftentimes you know, kings will come in, certainly ancient world, they'll come in, they'll, <laughs> they'll knock off a few cities, and then they'll go to the king and they'll say, we can finish the job or you can come work for us. Right? It's just kind of like the big mafia boss. Because he doesn't want to spend gold and treasure you know, and, and blood of his, of his armies if he can just persuade this king to be subservient to him. But that's not what we see here. We see a total erasure of man's rule over man. All these kingdoms end. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we get a strong indication of why. In verse 26, then God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you notice what's missing? There's something missing out of that passage in regards to kingdom. He says, and let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It doesn't say, and over each other. Man was never given dominion over other men. It's not there. They took it. It is not in God's instruction. He wanted them to control the earth. Yes. To grow it. To harvest it. To organize it. For it to be bounteous. And, and give forth good food. And, and life. And take care of the animals. And the environment. But he never told man. You can rule each other. It's just not there. We are designed to live solely under the authority of Jesus Christ and God the Father. There's no other king needed. No other king needed. And I hope to, to dig into it with uh, later with the history of Israel because they probably came the closest prior to the establishment of the monarchy. You know, there's a scripture that says that every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there's a couple of ways of reading that. But they had the sovereign right under God to do whatever they wanted in their land. And nobody came and gave them a whole new set of building permits or told them that their sons had to go off and fight for the king. Not until they stupidly gave it away. And then we've been doomed ever since. We are designed to live under God's authority not under man's. But what kingdom thought it had the right? Well, every kingdom that man has ever made, right? And at the top of it all is Babylon. Babylon the Great. 
In Revelation chapter 18 and verse 11, we get a litany of things that Babylon had and ruled over and, and enjoyed and traded in. And it says in verse in Revelation 18, verse 11, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her when, when she's crushed, when the kingdom of God has come down and flattened her and consumed her and the eagles have eaten the entrails. It's gone. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and iPads and flat screen TVs and the latest cars and boats and whatever else we have. Precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every kind of object of ivory and every kind of object of most precious wood bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and incense and fragrant oil and frankincense, and wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses, there's the cars again with chariots, and the bodies and souls of men. This is Babylon. This is the kingdom of men. And you know, we have been incredibly fortunate to live in a very narrow slither of time in human history, in a very narrow place on the earth, where we are somewhat autonomous, and we can somewhat control our own lives. But that is so very rare. The kingdoms of men buy and sell people. Sold and traded by the rich and the powerful, by the ones in, in charge, right? The golden rule. Those with the gold make the rules. This is the sort of kingdom that's getting consumed, and the eagles gather around it. Anybody ready for that? An amen? There's only two people back there that, that raised their hand. Let's get this done. Well, there's some ugliness, isn't there, that comes before we can enter into the kingdom of God. Turning back to Matthew 24 and verse 29, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. He hasn't even done anything yet. It's just the sign of his appearing. Man, those crazy Christians were right. Oh, no. They were right. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great, great glory. <clears throat> then he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. <clears throat> now I think it's important to remember 
that as, we, as Jesus returns, as we see this stone that is cut out without hands from, from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it comes crashing down on Babylon, and all the kingdoms of men that it represents, there is a gathering of the elect. There's a gathering of the elect. It reminds me of, has anybody seen the movie Braveheart? A long time ago. And there's like, there's this moment where they finally realize that they can beat the English. And so they gather the clans. And they're coming from everywhere. And you see them streaming, you know, as they show it in the movie. And they're just, they're running to the standard of William Wallace in this instance, in the, in the story. But they're coming to battle. They're excited they're going to throw off the yoke of those terrible English. I can say that because I've learned that I'm mostly Scottish now with my DNA, so I figured that out. That's what it reminds me of. There's this great gathering of the elect, gathering to battle. And they are angry. They are angry. And they have a righteous anger, the same anger that God has. They're filled with fury and fierceness, just like their king. They're ready to devour the kingdoms of men. They're like eagles, ready, straining to go after their prey. And like their king, they come from a far country. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 13, verse 1. <clears throat> the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. For my anger. They're for his anger. They're for his fury. Who are these if they're not the saints? The people of God from all ages. Just as, just as we read in, in Matthew 24. These are the same ones that are gathering together as warriors behind the warrior king. And and we have this imagery. You know, how many times have we seen like Braveheart or other movies where the, the king is out in front of the, of the, the army and they're, they're getting a little fearful. The enemy looks fierce. And the king is marching up and down and he's raising his voice. He says, raise your voice. Encourage them. Tell them what we're going to do. Cry havoc, right? And slip the dogs of war. He's telling the saints to get ready because they're going to enter the gates of the nobles, of the kings and the queens and all the presidents, prime ministers, and all the power people of the world. Raising and waving his hand is a signal attack. Wave upon wave. That's what we're presented here as the kingdom of God is returning to the earth. The noise of a multitude in the mountains. 
like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country. They come from a far country. Just like that man that follows and institutes the counsel of God that we read about. Just like the eagle from the east. They come from a far country. From the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take a hold of them. They will be as in pain as a woman in childbirth. I was reading this earlier, and Renee's like, when are you going to get to the happy part? That's, that's tough stuff. But that is childbirth, isn't it? Ladies that have endured childbirth, there is pain and there's suffering and there's blood and there's cutting and tearing. And then there's incredible joy. Because it is a birth of a new kingdom, a birth of a new nation together at once on the earth. A kingdom that will be from everlasting to everlasting. This is the last battle. The last one on the earth. At least until, for some crazy reason, Satan's released for a thousand years. I don't really understand that. <laughs> but they will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. That's the kingdoms of men right there. That's the kings and the princes of the earth, the proud and the terrible. <clears throat> I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. <clears throat> Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and will move out of it. Will move out of its place. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of His fierce anger. And then dropping down to verse seventeen, it seems to change context. Because it's, it's very much looked like the return of the kingdom of God. And, and, and it is. For the saints. And it is that. But then it goes into this context of the Medes and the Persians coming against Babylon. And it says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. You know, they can't be bought off. They can't be given a bribe and... Don't come in and destroy us. Here, here's all our gold. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. 
nor will the Arabian pitch its tents there, nor will the shepherd make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels, and jackals in their pleasant places. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. And, of course, we know from history that this happened. And we can go to that part of Iraq and go to Babylon, and I think there's a tourist shop there now or something like that. It's not a great city anymore. This really happened. And so while this is both talking about the return of God and the kingdom of earth coming on the earth, or the kingdom of God coming on the earth, it is also a remembrance of something that did happen so that we can be assured of the fact that God will complete this next phase of his plan. Many have been looking for who on the earth will rise up in that tradition of Babylon, right? The head of gold and silver and bronze and iron and iron and clay and who, which, which nation or a group of nations or region, or group of regions, will be those ten toes and the iron and the clay. And maybe that will be revealed. Maybe we will come to realize what that is. But it would not surprise me at all if we finally realize at the end we've been living in it all along. We've been living in this tradition of Babylon this tradition of the Persians and the Greeks, and certainly in Rome, that we have been living in Babylon. And that judgment of God, that kingdom of God, comes on the whole world. Babylon, in many ways, is the representative of the kingdoms of man. It represents the rulership of man over other men which was against what God wanted. We have no right to rule over one another. We only have one king. Jesus is Lord. Mankind and Caesar and kings are not. And it's important to note that even when the kingdom of God does come, when it does arrive on the earth, and we, we are told that as saints, as, as these sanctified ones, of those that have, have overcome in this life, we are told that we're going to be kings and priests. But there's a very important difference about all the kings that have ever gone before and what the saints will be. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who those would be beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, had not received his mark in their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 
but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. There's a big difference here. I think one, the saints are no longer men. They are now the children of God, born into the family of God. But bigger than that is they do not rule without Jesus Christ. The saints rule yoked with Jesus Christ. And that's an important difference. It's a really important difference. As we think about, and we've, we've talked about it in all kinds of ways, but you know, one of the things that stands out to me the most is, is messages that, that talk about our, or the saints' role in the kingdom of God and the parable that Jesus gave. Have ye rulership over five cities, ten cities? Very important that we remember that we are ruling with Christ. It's co-regency. And that's important for us because it speaks to our heart. We just want to rule other people? That's been the desire of man throughout the ages. The kingdom of God is different. We rule with Christ. We are yoked with Christ, just as we're supposed to be in this life. So let's look forward to that kingdom of God. Let's look forward to what comes after, the things that precede the coming of the kingdom of God. And hopefully I I will get to uh, do a series on this, and we can really just dig in to the beauty and the blessings that we have in store for us and that mankind has when the kingdom of God is on this entire earth and the kingdom of man has come to an end.